0: Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week, speaker Pastor Steve Benninger delivers the fourth message from the series Portraits, Jesus, Who Are You? You can find the sermon outline and video for this message at enewlife.com or the New Life Church Kahana mobile app.
1: and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Ainon near Selim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him.
2: John chapter 3. Are you kidding me? Preachers dream. And the whole thing, right? The whole thing. Well, um, if you're new around here, uh, please know that we are a church that believes in the Bible, and we love the Bible, we don't worship the Bible, we worship Jesus, but we do love the Bible, and we believe that God chose to reveal truth to humanity through the Scriptures, through the Word of God. Now, the Bible doesn't claim to reveal all the truth that there is in the universe, but rather it claims to reveal all the truth that we need to know in order to have a relationship with God, our Creator. And that relationship, the Bible tells us, is only possible because God designed a marvelous rescue plan for humanity. And you know what? He is executing that plan to perfection even as we speak. And one Bible passage that unveils God's plan is the one we just heard, John chapter 3. So if you haven't taken your study guide out yet, do that so you can track with me this morning. And uh, in this great chapter that we're looking at, I want to begin by making a few observations, okay? First, it's in this chapter that the writer... John, John the disciple, is going to describe the first of two personal encounters that Jesus had with people in which he shared the gospel with them. How would you like to hear the gospel from Jesus? Well, here in chapter three, we get to eavesdrop on a late night conversation that Jesus had with a very religious Jewish man named Nicodemus. That's right. Then in chapter four, next weekend, we'll see Jesus engaging with a Samaritan woman who is not named, so we just call her the woman at the well. That's right. And the the difference in Jesus' approach with these two people, to me, is very fascinating. I mean, how he related to a man, on the one hand, steeped in religion, versus how he spoke to an immoral woman with a shameful past, is something I think we can all learn from. To me, these two people represent... Two ways of being far from God. On the one hand, religious Phariseeism, Nicodemus, and on the other hand, rebellious license, the immoral woman. And Jesus, in his goodness, chooses to enter into both of their lives to show them a third way, the true way, the only way, God's way. And we're going to get to see that. Some other interesting things you might have noted when uh, Todd was reading, John 3 contains some famous verses, Uh, you must be born again, Uh, John 3, 16, of course, Uh, the verse that says he must increase and I must decrease, a lot of well-known verses in John 3. It's also a chapter rich with allusions to the Old Testament, it talks about Being born again, being cleansed with water, the wind blowing, the serpent lifted up in the wilderness, those were all allusions to Old Testament passages. Of course, Nicodemus, a religious teacher, should have been familiar with those, right? It's interesting to me that, that John, the author here, doesn't tell us what happened with Nicodemus or how he responded to this conversation. He records the start of the conversation and then before long, Nicodemus just kind of vanishes away and John gets lost in what Jesus is saying so it's a bit unlike the encounter with the Samaritan woman where John will tell us exactly how she responded but here we're kind of left asking so what happened with Nick (laughs) did he end up believing or or what happened with him and if you want to know what happened you'll have to look ahead in John to chapter 7 and chapter 19 for some clues but as I studied this chapter it dawned on me that what John here is doing, he, he's showing Jesus Christ answering some of the most important questions that a human being can ever ask. Questions really that, that everybody in the world should be asking and seeking the answers to for their own good, for their own benefit. And so, as so I thought more about that, I decided to break from my typical pattern. You know how I like to walk through a text and give you an outline, going a little bit different direction today. What I want to present to you are seven questions, as I said, that everybody in the world ought to be asking. Everybody ought to be asking these questions at some point in their life, and they're answered by Jesus and by Jesus' cousin. So here we go. That's where I'm going today. Number one, first question. Everybody ought to be asking this question, how can I see the kingdom of God? Or put another way, how can I become one of God's people, one of God's children? Or how can I be made right with God? Or how can I know for sure that I'm going to heaven? Or how can I know that God is my king and that I truly belong to his royal family? All of those are the same question, really. And nothing could be more important for any human being to know, wouldn't you agree? It's interesting, this fellow Nicodemus slinks over to Jesus' place under the cover of darkness, so nobody will see him. He's a Pharisee, he's a very religious man, steeped in the religion of Judaism. As I said, he's a teacher of the Old Testament scriptures. And he shows up on Jesus' doorstep. His intentions? Well, we're not totally sure. He's either just intrigued by Jesus and curious to know more about him, Or, perhaps, he's coming late at night to do some kind of some backroom politicking with Jesus on behalf of the Pharisees who are getting more and more worried because Jesus' popularity was on the rise, right? So maybe, you know, hey, look, Jesus, (laughs) you know, hey, we're willing to forget about that little incident the other day at the temple. I mean, think about it, Jesus. You're a young guy. You're talented. You got a bright future ahead of you. You don't want to get on the wrong side of the wigs around here. You don't want to do that. And you know, people are getting stirred up, and if that happens too much, the Romans are going to show up, and none of us want that. Maybe, maybe we could find some common ground. Hey, Jesus, maybe we could work together. That could have been his angle. But whatever, Je- whatever Nicodemus' intentions were, <laughs> Jesus blows right past his polite introduction and his compliments and proceeds to answer a question that Nicodemus didn't even seem to be asking. Don't you just love it when people do that? But the truth is that Jesus came to answer the questions that we should be asking. And so verse 3, Jesus answered him. He didn't ask anything, but Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' answer to a question that everybody in the world would do well to ask themselves at some point in their life. Amen? How can I ever see the kingdom of God? Answer only through being born again. Only through being born again. And there is so much underneath those words. Think about the implications of what Jesus was saying. I mean, for one, he was saying that being religious isn't enough. I mean, their standing before him that night was a very religious man, more religious than any of us, for sure. But it wasn't enough. Jesus said, you need a new birth, Nicodemus. Religion was not enough. He was also saying that being convinced that Jesus is a great teacher from God is not enough. Nicodemus believed that. He, He said that. He was impressed with Jesus. He was impressed with Jesus' oratorical abilities. But that's not enough either. It might be a start, but just respecting Jesus is not the same as being born again. And then he was saying that that even believing that, that Jesus performed miracles is not enough. Nicodemus knew that Jesus had unique powers, they had been put on display already. But while being persuaded of that is a good thing, again, it's insufficient, it's not enough. The one essential for seeing and participating in the kingdom of God is being born again. That's what Jesus said. Experiencing a second birth, which of course leads us to a second question that everybody on the earth should be asking. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean? You must be born again. What does that mean? And it appears that Nicodemus was a bit confused and baffled by Jesus' response, he fumbles around with the concept a little bit. Born again, go back inside, mommy, come out again. And Jesus responds with an explanation that was saturated in the Old Testament. And it's something that Nicodemus, as a religious teacher, should have been familiar with. Verse 5 again Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I'm telling you the truth, Nicodemus. I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? He's baffled. And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? That is a rebuke, isn't it? What does it mean to be born again? Answer, the new birth is a spiritual birth, not another physical birth, a spiritual birth that imparts new life and it is accomplished through a sovereign work of God by his Holy Spirit. No, the, the, the second birth, being born again, he's not talking about a second physical birth, is he? And it, That's good, because we need to get that image right out of our minds, don't we? <laughs> In fact, when Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, flesh gives birth to flesh, Jesus was implying that our first birth, our physical birth, actually makes us unfit for the kingdom of God. And the Bible confirms that in so many places that we humans actually inherited a kind of birth defect from our parents. Not a physical one, but a spiritual birth defect that disqualifies us from entering the kingdom of God. The Bible refers to it many ways. It it calls it sinful flesh. We all got it. Our kids got it from us. Our grandkids got it from our kids. It doesn't skip generations. Sinful flesh, it includes our skin and bones, but it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? It's, 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 a, it's a bent, it's, a, it's an inclination to want to rule over our own lives and reject and cast off authority over us. Who's going to tell me what to do and how to live my life? Especially casting off the kingship of a holy creator, God. And so by nature and through our physical birth, we humans are unfit for life in the kingdom of God. And Jesus told Nicodemus that he, like the rest of us, needed a second birth that would reverse and undo the fatal effects of the first birth and qualify him to live with God forever in heaven. And note that the two pictures that Jesus used, by the way, they both come from the Old Testament, from Ezekiel 36 and 37, note that those analogies make it clear that the second birth is a sovereign work of God, a work of God's Spirit, who gives this new birth whenever and to whomever He wills. Did you note that? Both the analogy of being born and the analogy of the blowing wind reveal that this is something God does. In human beings, to human beings, for human beings. This is not something we do for ourselves. I mean, think about it. Think about birth. How many of you chose your parents? No. How many of you chose where you would be born? When you would be born? In what hospital you would be born? I mean, we had nothing to do with our first birth. And Jesus is saying, similarly, our second birth is something that God does in us. And then he talks about the wind blowing wherever it wants to blow. And he says, in the same way, the spirit of, of God sovereignly, according to his own will, decides who will be born again into God's royal family and how that will come about. And that's why the necessity of having a new birth is often perplexing to religious people. Like Nicodemus. Because religious people read the Bible And the way they read it is they see it as a book that tells us that if we want to be right with God, we need to behave better and do good. It's all about moral conformity and religious performance. That trying to be a better person is the path to salvation. And Jesus is saying, it's not. It's not. You must be born again. And so that night, the teacher was being schooled by the teacher of teachers. You must be born again. But that brings up the next question that everybody on the planet should ask themselves. Number three, why should I trust Jesus regarding these matters? Why should I trust Jesus? And of course, this is the issue of what? Of credentials. Of credentials. We all face that question every day, right? You turn on the news. You listen to someone telling you something happened, and and maybe you think, well, why should I believe you? (laughs) Why should I trust you? Why should I believe that person? What basis does that gal have for saying that? Here in this election season, right? People are standing up on stage saying things. It's like, well, are you credible? Can I believe what's coming out of your mouth? Who am I going to trust to tell me the truth? So here was a young upstart preacher from Nowheresville, without any formal religious training to speak of, starting to defy long-held traditions, and he's going to bring this issue of credentials to the forefront. I imagine Nicodemus is there listening to Jesus. Perhaps Nicodemus was thinking, well, why should I listen to this guy? Who made you the expert about how to get into the kingdom of God? And maybe Jesus anticipated that in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we... I think he's talking about he and his disciples. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you, and it's plural here, you all, y'all, aren't receiving our testimony. You, Nicodemus, and your ilk. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Can you see he's talking about his credentials? Later, John's going to reinforce Jesus' authority and Jesus' credentials. Verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So question three, why should I trust Jesus regarding these things? Answer from Jesus, the Son who was with the Father in heaven is the only one qualified to tell people the truth about heavenly realities. Now you can kind of tell here that even though it's early in Jesus' ministry, there's already resistance. There's already some opposition to His message. I'm sure people were thinking, what what right does this young guy have to come along and challenge the status quo like he's doing? But here we see his answer. Jesus believed that he was from above, from God, and that that uniquely qualified him to speak about the realities of God's kingdom. It's like he's saying, you want credentials? I lived in heaven. (laughs) I've seen the kingdom of God. I've lived with God. I know him. He knows me. I've heard his words. I'm just telling you what he told me to tell you. Those are my credentials. And then he makes an audacious claim in verse 33, really. He basically says, look, if you want to know if what I'm saying is true, just believe it and you'll know. And you know what? There are doubting people. There are questioning people, always doubting, always wanting proof. I need more proof. Show me more proof. I need more proof. I'm 85% convinced. I need you to give me more proof, more proof. And there is more proof. But if you're a chronic questioner, there comes a point when you must just decide to believe. And your faith will be self-authenticating. You'll just know that you know that you know that it's true right here. I was talking with a guy yesterday and... We were talking about spiritual things, and I said, you know what? Don't take this wrong, but, but I know that I know that I know that I'm on my way to heaven as if I'd already been living there a thousand years. I said, I'm not, it's not me. It's not because I'm so awesome. It's because I know who I'm trusting in, and I know how trustworthy he is. I just know it. And don't miss that Jesus, talk about audacious was also claiming the full authority of the entire trinity for himself. (laughs) Verse 34. For he whom God has sent, who's that? Jesus. Utters the words of God, that's the Father, for he, God, gives the Spirit without measure. Literally gives to him the Spirit without measure. So what was Jesus saying? You want credentials? You want authority? How about this? The full authority of the other two members of the Holy Trinity is behind me 100%. (laughs) God the Father sent me with my message and I speak it in the full power of the Holy Spirit. That's authority. So look, everybody's got to make their own decision, right? About who they're going to trust to tell them the truth. Everybody's got to make a decision for themselves, especially when it comes to this matter of eternal realities. Who am I going to believe? I can listen to Joseph Smith or Confucius or whoever. Christians are those who've decided that Jesus of Nazareth has sufficient credibility to warrant their full trust. They believe Jesus is telling us the truth here. He's been in heaven. He's lived in eternity. He knows what's on the other side. And so for me, I've made my choice. I've decided I'm going to believe the one who's lived in heaven and been there. All right, we've seen in this conversation that Jesus believed he was qualified to tell a religious man that he needed to be born again if he wanted to get into God's kingdom and that that born-again experience is a sovereign work of God. So what's our part in it? What's our part then? And that's the next question that everybody should be asking, what is my responsibility then in being born again? I'm going to read verse 14. You tell me what our part is, okay? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that's a reference to the Old Testament, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What's our part? Belief. Belief. Believe. What is my responsibility in being born again? Believe in the crucified Son of Man who was also the Son of God. Believe, And that is a very, very important Bible word, isn't it? Belief. It includes mental assent to facts. It includes an intellectual component of believing some things about Jesus. But it's more than that. It's more than that. The word here, when you look in the original, when it says believe in him, it's literally believe into him. Ah, that tells us that this is more than just up here, right? This is believing in the Bible is entrusting your whole life to someone that you deem to be trustworthy. Someone you choose to trust because you know he gave his life for you. Jesus said, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, that's a reference to what? It's a reference to his death. But he's three years away from dying. This is at the front end of his ministry. But he knew that day was coming. He knew it was coming. He knew he was going to be lifted up. And that would be reminiscent of the scene from the Old Testament recorded in Numbers chapter 21. Let me just remind you of this story. The children of Israel are doing what they always did. They were wandering through the wilderness, wandering through the desert, wandering, 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 wandering. And again, they started up their whining and their chronic complaining. We don't like it out here. We don't like the food you're providing for us, God. As it happened many times. And this time it incited the Lord to judgment. And the judgment took the form of poisonous snakes sent into their camp, right? And many were bit and poisoned. And then they repented. Good move, good move. And when they did so, God provided a cure in the form of a crafted bronze snake that he told Moses to spend this on a pole in the middle of the camp in chapter 21, verse 9, it says, if a, servant, if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Look and live. Look and live. Behold, behold the cure. Believe that it's sufficient for me and avoid death. And that was good news to those Israelite sinners back then. And here Jesus shares with Nicodemus the good news that God has made provision for everybody to be cured of their sin and avoid eternal death. And he went on to preach the gospel to Nicodemus in the most famous verse in the Bible. If you know it, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He went on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Nicodemus, I'm going to be the lifted up one. I'm going to be the one cursed for the sake of the people. And all repenting sinners who look to me will live Live. And look, don't miss the motivation behind this rescue offer from God. For God so loved the world, right? That's the Greek word agape. You've heard of agape love? That's God's kind of love. That's self-sacrificing, self-giving love. Unconditional, relentless, unstoppable love. God the Father giving His Son as a sacrifice was the greatest expression ever of true love. Don't ever forget that. And so our part, what's our part, Steve? It's to believe that He loves us. For God so loved the world, His love is indiscriminate. Jesus died for everyone. Jesus died for you. For you, for you, for you, for you, for you. Our part is to believe in his love for us and to believe that he's done everything that was necessary to reverse the curse, to undo the damning results that came to us through our first birth by paying for our sins so that we could be born again and have his life. What is our responsibility? Believe into Jesus. Believe into him. That's the only way anyone is going to avoid perishing. It's the only way anyone's going to avert the righteous judgment of God. It's the only way anyone will receive eternal life in the kingdom of God. Amen? Now the next question is an important one to know the answer to as well. Number five, well, what about those who don't believe? What about those who don't believe? And Jesus' answer is sobering. In essence, he said, they are condemned. Because of their unbelief, remaining under God's wrath, and they will experience eternal death. And that is heavy. You know, it's become popular in our day to try and soften this truth or to round off the hard edges of it or or even deny it altogether. I'm in an email debate about this very thing right now with someone who used to attend this church, but they left when they felt that we weren't going to budge on hard teachings like this one. And I'll admit, this is not a pleasant thing to talk about. It's not a pleasant thing to dwell on. This is something that can keep us awake at night as we think about people we know and love who are not yet born again, what they're going to face. But even if we might want to change the message, we can't. It's not ours to change. We can't tamper with the message. As I said before, I'm just the mailman. My job is to deliver the mail, not tamper with the mail. Just relate what Jesus said. Jesus said, truly, truly. He's telling the truth. He's been in heaven. He's God. He knows what eternity holds. And in verse 18, he said, Whoever believes in him, speaking of himself, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 35 amplifies this a bit. It says, The Father loves the Son. And I want you to remember that. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, present tense. Eternal life is not something you get after you die. It's something you receive presently. And whoever does not obey the Son, it's a faith that leads to obedience, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Unbelievers are condemned because they reject the only remedy for sin that there is. Jesus and his shed blood Now, interestingly, John gives us an angle on this here that we might not have thought about. Namely, as I said, that the father loves the son. And the father loves the son, his son, so much and has such high regard for his son willing to lay down his life for human sin that when a human being that he created counts that a little thing and spurns it and refuses to look upon Jesus as their only hope of salvation... When someone rejects the Son, who is the love of the Father, the Father rejects them. You see, it's a matter of honor to the Father. You will not treat my Son like that. My Son, who gave his life for you, who bore your sin on the cross. The Father loves the Son. His wrath remains on those who refuse the remedy that he provided for sin. Now listen, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But this love, this intra-Trinitarian love is so intense, so strong, that those who reject the Son's sacrifice must be condemned by the Father. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. And so the Father's love for the Son results in a great division among humanity, doesn't it? It's like you ever been in the airport in the concourse there and one of those uh, people mover things comes up the aisle, you know what I'm saying? And people you know, peel off to the right and to the left to let that thing through. Here comes Jesus right through humanity and creates this division. Those who believe, those who believe and only those will be spared condemnation and will receive eternal life and forgiveness and the eternal home in heaven with the, the royal family of God pardon for all their sins, but those who refuse to do so remain under the wrath of God and will not see life. Big division. As one theologian noted, everybody's sin will be punished in one of two places. Either on an old rugged cross or in a lake of fire that burns forever and ever everybody's sin will be punished in one of those two places, not both, one of the two, either in the bloody, battered body of the Son of God hanging on an old rugged cross they will either be punished there in his body or you will pay for your sins forever in a place called the lake of fire, hell. I wonder where Nicodemus would have preferred his sins be punished. I wonder which of those two places you want your sin to be punished in. For me, I've made my choice. Another question that follows naturally from this, maybe one that's arisen in your mind, number six, why do so many people avoid coming to Jesus for salvation? Answer, according to Christ, their works are evil and they love keeping them concealed in the darkness rather than being exposed by the light. Verse 19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. That's a person, right? Jesus, the light of the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Why do so many people avoid coming to Jesus for salvation? In short, it's because humans love their sin. By nature, human beings want to run our own lives, as I said, want to do whatever we're inclined to think is going to make us happy, whether it hurts other people or grieves God. Prospect of seeing their sin for how wicked it really is repels many people. But that's what happens when people come to Jesus, right? He's the light. And when you get in the presence of Jesus and you're thinking, you know, I thought I was a pretty good person compared to my neighbor Harold or my coworker Margaret. I thought I was, I thought I was pretty good. But now I'm in the presence of pure holiness and I see in the lights that I've got blemishes and blotches and stains and darkness in me. And some people say, you know what? I don't want any, anything to do with that. And they steer clear of Jesus. And it's so sad because Jesus could cleanse them and forgive them, and purify them, and make them holy. One final question, one that I think many people are asking, although maybe not out loud. Won't I be miserable if I make my life all about Jesus? Answer, no! No, no, you won't. John the Baptist testifies here that that our joy is made complete through glorifying Christ above ourselves. There's great joy in this. As I said, John the author leaves us wondering how this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus turned out. Instead, he abruptly takes us to another scene where John the Baptist is, again, baptizing people. We've seen that before. And as we saw before, some people were puzzled about John's seeming lack of concern that people were leaving him and going to Jesus. Verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, that's Jesus. Look, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, he's talking about himself now, the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I wonder how many of your friends have ever had this thought. Well, if I become a Christian and start to follow Jesus and Make my life all about him, then I know I'm gonna to have to give up all of my fun. And I'm gonna be miserable the rest of my life. Bummer. I, I think John included this little, seemingly out of place snapshot here to help people realize that the greatest joy of all is in living to magnify Jesus Christ. I mean, look at what John the Baptist was saying. I'm not upset that people are leaving me to go over to Him and follow Him. That was my calling all along. It's never been about me. It's always been about Him. That's been my joy, to magnify Jesus Christ with my life, my one and only life. I'm like the best man at the wedding, who feels so honored and privileged to be at my good friend's wedding. It's given me great joy to participate in His big day. Can you see what John is saying? To kind of sum it up. Here's what he's saying. His glory is my joy. His glory is my joy. And this is such a profound concept and reflects the truth of how we human beings were created. We were created to experience our greatest joy in praising another, not ourselves in living for another's fame, not our own. We were made to enjoy praising greatness, and we do it all the time. In arenas and stadiums all across this country, we enjoy praising greatness, don't we? Or that which we perceive as greatness. But listen, our highest joy, our highest joy will be when we are wholeheartedly praising the highest greatness. And that is the Lord. You know that's true. You know that's true. I've said this before and it's not original with me. I borrowed it. I've never had an original thought in my life actually. (laughs) Your desire to be happy and God's desire to be glorified are the same desire. God's pursuit of his own fame which he is after, and your pursuit of joy and happiness are one and the same pursuit. They are inextricably tied together. God designed it that way. I'm, listen to me. I'm telling you this. Living your life to make much of yourself is a sure path to depression. Living your life to make much of somebody else is a sure path to Disappointment. But living your life to magnify Jesus Christ is the surest path to joy and happiness. It is. You were created for this, and so was I. But listen, it'll never be the dominating desire of your heart to make much of Christ until you are born again, until you have new life, until you're in, the kingdom. in fact, that's one way of knowing that you are in the kingdom. You enjoy making much of Jesus. That's evidence. Did you know that making much of Jesus is a primary activity in the kingdom of God? Especially the future manifestation of the kingdom in heaven. If you read Revelation 4 and 5, what's going on there? Aren't people adoring and making much of the lamb and enjoying the heck out of it? People who don't desire to see Jesus magnified won't want to be in the kingdom because that's what's going on. They'll be miserable. But when someone looks to Jesus and beholds him lifted up and truly believes in his loving sacrifice for their sins, then they receive this gift, this new birth that issues forth in new life that comes from a new heart that has new desires, new loves, and new joys. This is so good. The gospel is such good news. And so I must finish by actually asking an eighth question to all of us today, and it's blank there on your outline. Because nothing is more important for you than your answer to this. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? The elderly woman walked up to the preacher after his sermon and inquired, Pastor, why do you always keep preaching that we must be born again? And he looked at her and said, Dear lady, because you must be born again. (laughs) Question number eight is my question for you. Have you been born again? Do you have a spiritual birthday? I know you have a physical birthday Do you have a spiritual birthday? And when I ask that question, if you just double clutch for a moment, if you hesitate, wouldn't it be tragic if someone walked out of here today after having heard a sermon on John 3 and not be born again? And if you've got this hesitation like, I don't know that I can point to a time, a place, a year, a month, a day, when I went from death to life, from darkness to light, from unbelief to belief, how about today? How about today? Today is the day of salvation. And if, if that's you, like there were folks last service, if that's you, if you're just like, oh, I'm not sure, then I have two paths for you to take. One is in a moment when we're worshiping, you could come up to a prayer partner and just say that to them. I am not sure, but I want to be sure. Can you guide me Into that, And I know they'd love to do that. Second one is, after the service, I'm going to be back in the prayer room back here in this far corner of the building. And I'll just be waiting for anyone who wants you to come in and say, could you please confirm my new birth with me today? I'd love to pray with you about that. And just settle that. I'll even sign your Bible like I did with the person this
0: last hour.
2: Spiritual birthday, February 28th.
0: Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's Word and seek to know Him better through the Gospel. Our prayer is that the Gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the Word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.